Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Face of democracy, very good. Hello, thanks for being with us for another episode of Democracy Sausage, which of course emanates from the ANU, Australia's national university, and in particular from the good offices of Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Well, I suppose this is what a second wave looks like. Not identical in shape or numbers to the first wave, but every bit as worrying, and perhaps even more so. As Melburnians huddled under what Scott Morrison has previously called the Duna, he showed that you don't have to be Prime Minister to get the tone wrong, but it sure helps. At one level, this is harsh. It is legal to go to the football in New South Wales, and nobody should begrudge the PM for letting off a bit of steam, especially after six gruelling months of meetings and press conferences and so forth. But at another level, the PM going to the footy operates contrary to the spirit of what authorities are trying to achieve. And that's why last weekend's outing is like the first time he encouraged it back in March, as an invitation to behave as if there is no epidemic. What leaders say matters. What they do matters even more. Look at it like this. Confronted with the viral threat, medical experts advocate complete separation of people to stop transfer of the virus. Politicians then temper that scientific ideal with some economic and political realities, aware that shutting down a society in the purest sense is untenable. In the end, rules for social interaction go only as far as is absolutely necessary, with the rest done by messaging, encouraging people to do only what they cannot avoid – shopping, travelling for work, school, medical appointments and personal exercise. When the PM said back in March that he was going to the footy that weekend and encouraged others to do likewise, even as he foreshadowed a ban on gatherings of more than 500 people, he got the message wrong. It was both inconsistent with his own impending ban, but it was also inconsistent with the reasons underpinning that ban, namely the need to dramatically curtail normal social behaviour. Of the two reasons Victorians were confronted by images of the PM waving his scarf with beer in hand on Saturday, empathy and consistency, the latter is more instrumental. Leadership is hard and it is unrelenting. My view is that yes, Morrison did get it wrong by publicly displaying little empathy for Victorians saddled with a new lockdown. But the bigger mistake was in suggesting that people across the board should feel free to do everything up to the line of any prohibitions on discretionary social activity. In March, it was the incoming 500-person ban which Morrison's explicit invitation to attend the football contradicted. This time, it's the Victorian crisis, and even the words of his own state premier, Gladys Berejiklian, who is pleading with people to stay the course, lest her state follows the, quote, Victorian path. Don't be surprised if the government takes decisions to further reduce the risk in the next month, Berejiklian said within hours of the PM going to the footy. 
Well, that's what I think, but let's see what our panel has to say. Economist Professor Quentin Grafton is the UNESCO Chairholder in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance, and he's based here at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome back, Quentin. Thank you, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's a welcome back also to Annika Smethurst, who is political editor for the News Corp Sunday Mastheads and is the author of a new book on secrets. And Annika, one of the other secrets I can reveal today is that you and I will be doing an in-conversation in a couple of weeks here at ANU discussing that very book and your experience, I guess, of being raided by the federal police. We will be. Thank you, Mark. So that's something that uh, people can come along to, and I'll mention a bit more about that later. Now, to each of you, uh, do you have any thoughts or violent disagreements with the point I was somewhat cumbersomely making there that uh, (laughs) um, Morrison obviously can go to the football, but is it really something that we should be encouraging people to do, which is kind of, you know, what he does by, you know, because national leaders, when they do things, it, it gets covered. I wouldn't say a violent disagreement, but I actually do disagree with you on this one. Um, I don't think the images were good. I don't, but I don't actually have any issue with him going to the football. Um, If you open up for the public and if you say we've made a decision that a certain number is safe, you can't send punters along and then not be willing to go to yourself. So I actually think it's the reverse of what you're saying. Mm. Um, You know, and I'm a Victorian. I'll put that out there. I live in Canberra, but I'm a Victorian and I feel deeply sorry for what's happening to Victoria, and I fear that the rest of the country might only be a few weeks away. But I think this is very different to the first time he went. I think the problem was when he said he was going to go in March and then cancelled. It was the timing of it. It was, oh, I'm going to go on Saturday night, but from Monday, this is going to be banned. We're in the reverse now. States where there isn't a spike, like in Victoria, are starting to open back up, and we are telling people that it is safe to do that. That's not the case in Victoria. They only have four reasons to go out. But in the rest of the country, that's not the, you know, there's been a lot of people that went to the footy on the weekend throughout New South Wales and Queensland. And I think by him actually going, uh, it suggests that it is safer. And there are steps you can take to get back into a certain way of life and a rhythm of life. And it's going to be different. You might not be sitting cheek by jowl with everyone at the footy. You might not be screaming. It's a very different uh, football environment to what we know. But that we're going to have to get back to life at some point, and this is how he wanted to display it. But, Quentin, the the Premier in that very state that Scott Morrison's in, New South Wales, is admitting that the state teeters on the edge of a situation that could go either way, that they have to be extra vigilant at the moment, that within days or weeks they could be looking at further restrictions given there's a number of possibilities for the virus to... Um, break out in New South Wales as it has in Victoria. And the very fact of Victoria has given the country a wake-up call about the risks associated with this this, uh, this releasing of restrictions, that uh, if there is an outbreak and you've already opened up the economy, it's a, it's a much bigger challenge to try and control it. So it strikes me that, yeah, you can have rules, but you can also have leadership by example, uh, yes, you can go to the footy, but ideally, perhaps, you know, the, the fewer people that do, the better in the, in the current precarious circumstances. Yeah, look, there's a lot of issues here, Mark, and I think you've raised some good ones. Uh, I personally don't have an issue with the Prime Minister going out. Uh, he was practising social distancing, as far as I could see in the photographs, and so he was consistent with the rule of the law and the, and the protocols. But I do think there are a set of issues here that need to be directed to the Prime Minister and National Cabinet. And so they received at the end of April a report from the group of eight universities. It was a very detailed report. It had a couple of options, uh, strategies. One was elimination and the other one was so-called controlled adaptation, which is neither controlled nor adaptation. And they opt, uh, opted for the latter, the controlled adaptation. So there's a responsibility that uh, he and others within National Cabinet have to, to take responsibility for for that decision. And so the, the decision was to start relaxing from May 10th, uh, depending where you were in, the, in Australia. And uh, uh, at the time, and in that advice, the recommendation was to go to the very, at the very end of May, so a couple more weeks. 
and then relax in a, perhaps a different way. So, so I think there's the, the certainly blame to be passed around uh, to the prime minister and others. And I would that's where I would put my focus in there. But I, but I think there is an issue here that you're raising in terms of messaging and inconsistency. So, for example, you get a flight uh, from Melbourne <laughs> on Qantas or Jetstar, whatever airline we want to mention, uh, and uh, you are sitting next to somebody who in the middle seat next to you. We know pretty much now that the virus has spread through very small droplets, uh, you know, the aerosols. Uh, and so if you're not wearing a mask, uh, you're sitting next to somebody, regardless of these uh, super duper filters that uh, Alan Joyce has told us about. I mean, clearly you're putting yourself at risk. So you're going into an aircraft to most people aren't wearing masks uh, and they're not doing social distancing. It's kind of absurd that you'd be there <laughs> uh, and then uh, outside of the aircraft, you're into social distancing. Uh, it's kind of absurd that we have shopping malls, um, at least up until recently in, in, in Melbourne. Of course, now it's in lockdown where people were clearly not doing the one and a half meters. There should have been some way of engaging and reinforcing that messaging. So, so we do have a bunch of inconsistencies. We have inconsistencies in terms of what I would call pro formalism. So, so basically we do a tick box. Yes, we're people putting people into hotel quarantine for two weeks so we can tick a box. Well, actually, no, that's not good enough. You know, we have a good proportion of people who are not even uh, being tested in the quarantine hospitals. Now, that's going to change, I would hope. Uh, there was an announcement uh, made at the end of June, but that, that doesn't make any sense. You need to be tested on arrival and tested on exit. So um, the fact that we didn't have proper protocols in terms of how people were interacting within these hotel quarantines, again, that's a failure. But there's been failures in the context of contact tracing. We should have been building up the capacity that uh, Australia has. It, it is now beyond capacity. I, I don't know what it is. It's about 100 or maybe 150, whatever that number is in terms of contact tracing in Victoria. It's well past that now. So that means that there's lots of people who won't be traced in the next period of time, 48 hours or 30, you know, period that's required to make sure this virus doesn't spread quickly. Uh, and we're not being able to do that. So, so the basic stuff that should have been done hasn't been done. There's lots of blame to go around. <laughs> There's some credit to go around. I wouldn't focus on the, on, the, on the footy match. I'd focus on decisions that the Prime Minister and others made with the National Cabinet, and they should be held responsible for that. And, uh, and that's unfortunate because we had the opportunity to, I believe, eliminate community uh, transmission within Australia. If we'd done the right thing on quarantine and other areas, I think we could have got, got over this. Unfortunately, we didn't. We've got a problem right now in New South Wales. Yes, there's community transmission. Yes, it appears to have come from Victoria as well. So the question is, uh, are we going to act sooner rather than later? Uh, in the Victoria itself, there needs to be, from as I can see on the day, the last couple of days, there needs to be a lockdown statewide. Uh, it's not going to be held uh, in, the, in, in Melbourne. Clearly, it has now spread throughout to a number of key places in Victoria and to avoid that continuing, and especially without the contact tracing because of the lack of capacity, we're in a clear problem. So, yeah, major problem. This is very serious, and we need to act seriously in all sorts of ways. Now, anyone listening is going to notice that uh, you're a, a water economist who is talking about COVID. This is an area that you've, uh, in, in an admirable fashion, redirected your considerable economic modelling skills to now to uh, to look at some of this stuff. You've I've I've been reading on the internet that you've got um, you've been working on with Stephen Phipps at the University of Tasmania a method for backcasting using Monte Carlo methods. I'm just wondering. Uh, I mean, I've, I've certainly seen uh, Daniel Ricardo using Monte Carlo methods and sometimes going backwards through a corner. Uh, but I wonder if you can. Uh, I wonder if you can explain to the layperson what what that is, what you what you've done in terms of uh, your academic um, pivot during this crisis, and and perhaps if you can put that into layperson's terms. Yeah. So so first of all, I, I've collaborated with epidemiologists, economists, and and statisticians and modelers. So it's certainly not an individual effort. So we've got three pieces of work at the moment. The one that you highlighted with backcasting, uh, that's a, a useful method of, of trying to understand uh, how effective we are in terms of, 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 of testing, in terms of what uh, the overall infection rate is. So when people see the John Hopkins website or they hear these numbers in terms of confirmed cases, those are people who have been tested and found to be positive with COVID, okay? Uh, that mm -hmm. is not the total number of people with COVID. Uh, in Australia, 
we've done a really good job of testing. It's not good enough, but we've done a really good job by comparison to many other countries. But in the United States, for example, the testing there has just been suboptimal is the best way I could put it, awful at the beginning. And so what that means is the overall level of infection is much higher. So we uh, how, do, how do you work that out? Well, you can do it a couple of means. One, you can go to random testing in terms of the population and what are using uh, zero positive. So you basically do blood samples, see if you have been infected, even if you uh, have recovered. The other way is a statistical method. And you say, well, what is the, what is the, uh, this sounds a bit awful to your listeners, but we you know what are the, what's the death rate associated with, uh, with COVID? And uh, that death rate depends on demographics, but it's somewhere between, let's say, 0.5% and a little over 1%. Um, obviously, it's it's much higher in, in certain age groups with certain comorbidities. But you can take a range of that. You take a you take a sample of these parameters from uh, from this Monte Carlo approach, and then you can get a, a distribution associated with the overall levels of infection uh, for the entire population. And uh, you can do that reasonably well, and we have done that for 15 countries. We found that Australia was, a, was the best in terms of uh, its overall testing and detection, and we found some countries, uh, this is back at the end of April, we're updating the numbers now, we found that the United Kingdom, United States, and, uh, and uh, two or three other countries were doing very badly. So uh, what that meant was is that uh, 20, more than 20 times uh, people were infected or had been infected with the virus in those countries than was listed in terms of the confirmed cases. And that's very, very relevant because uh, that tells you the implications in the context of future deaths, future hospitalizations, uh, because once you know that's high infection rate, it, it also has implications of when you relax. Because if you're, if you're going on the basis of confirmed cases from the test, you might think that you can start relaxing a little, a little faster or a little sooner. Uh, but if you go on and say, well, actually, your real infection rate is 20 times that, uh, you'd be a lot more careful and a lot more uh, serious about how to deal with this. So, so it has value, that, that, that approach. The other pieces of work were uh, what I call epi-economic or epidemiological economic modelling. And that looked at uh, what Australia was doing uh, starting in March, uh, which was highly effective suppressing the virus and comparing an elimination strategy with the so-called controlled adaptation. Elimination comes hands up in terms of public health benefits and economy benefits. And then we're doing an additional type of modelling called indiv- individual based modeling, which is uh, important at lower infection rates. And we've got that model and we've been tuning it up until July July 5th uh, for Australia. So includes this latest outbreak in Victoria. And those results are very, very worrying for us. Uh, we see a real big uptake. <laughs> so the, 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 the Premier Andrews has done the right thing in locking down Greater Melbourne. He's going to have to lock down the entire state. And we need to be very, very vigilant in New South Wales in the next few days. We can't, you know, if it, if it gets out of hand in New South Wales, we're in seriously, seriously bad way for, for the country. So let's hope uh, mm. we do the right thing and act quickly to suppress the virus. The borders are, are closed. That's the right thing to do. Uh, let's make sure that uh, we up the uh, testing, we up the contact tracing uh, in all places, but especially, obviously, Victoria, now New South Wales. Uh, and uh, and let's uh, let let's do what we have to do. Uh, we it's not actually complicated. We need to suppress the virus by doing social distancing, and we need to back that up with a, a very effective testing regime, making it easy for people to test, making those test results come in quickly, not waiting several days, and, and then also contact tracing quickly, not waiting several days. So any person who's found to be positive, that there's a trace very quickly about who they've met over the intervening days. So that that's the basic stuff that has to be done. It requires resources. It requires proper implementation. We can do this. Yeah, but we have to do it. And, of course, individuals have to take responsibility, not just prime ministers and premiers. So, you know, we have to be careful. Mm. We have to do the one and a half metres. And ideally, we should be wearing masks. Uh, It's certainly in indoor public spaces. Australians should be wearing masks. Certainly in New South Wales, ACT in Victoria, where it appears to be some community transmission going on right now, uh, obviously in Victoria, but but, uh, I would argue that uh, it's uh, it's certainly not going to be limited to Victoria. Annika, I would I would say that the sort of 
aggregate theme of a lot of what uh, Quentin has just said does tend to back up the point I'm making, which is that even if there is uh, a relaxing of social distancing rules, that there ought to still be maximum caution and essentially minimum discretionary high high public contact behaviour. And that's why I say a Prime Minister ought to be leading by example, saying, all right, well, you know, we accept that there, is, there are pressures here, there are people's jobs, there are legitimate things that need to be done and there are businesses that are teetering on the edge that, that need to open and we do a risk assessment about that. But at the same time, we are leaning on everyone to maintain a high level of vigilance about this. And this is, I think, the political problem that all governments will have. I'm not trying to get into Scott Morrison here. I just think there's, it's a, it's a profoundly difficult thing for government. It wasn't so hard to get, uh, you had a sort of a contiguousness between, um, the crisis when we were first confronted with it and the lockdown, right? The, the two things seemed to make sense and, and, and reinforced each other. You then come into the into the releasing of restrictions phase, the opening up phase. It's very hard to keep the same levels of vigilance, and we see this. Uh, we've seen it on the streets of London. We've seen it all around the world. As they release restrictions, there's this overwhelming sort of exhale, which is a you know a pretty bad metaphor in this actually, because <laughs> that's the problem. Um, but uh, you know, there's this kind of sigh of relief. Oh, we've passed the crisis. It's over, and you see uh, you know streets in London packed with people around Soho. I saw a photo the other. Day, you know, it was it was full on because there was this sense the crisis has passed. Well, it hasn't actually. Uh, the virus is still there, and the, the vaccine is still not. Um, and so, if if what Quinter was saying, say about the prospect of expansion of the the, the viral threat in New South Wales, that is, it you know suddenly uh, they realise they're going to have to reimpose some restrictions. In hindsight, going to the footy is not going to look so smart, is it? No, but I think what will look worse in hindsight is the quarantine system in Melbourne. Like I understand the images of Scott Morrison look particularly bad, especially after Hawaii. And I can see the problem with it from a PR point of view. And given he has so many media advisors around him, I am surprised. And I did work Saturday and we managed to get those photos, some photos of him. And when I rang the prime minister's office, they didn't expect us to get them. He wasn't there they were happy for him to go, but I don't mm. think they were thrilled because I could think straight away they could probably sense where this would go. Having said that, I think you've got to if, – if you don't want people going to the footy, that's a national cabinet decision and you have to stop it there. Well, let me, let me put it to you. It's legal to smoke. But you never see politicians smoking in public. You do when you work at Parliament House, Mark. You and I would have <laughs> privately. Well, I mean, I saw. <laughs> you don't I see them in public seeing, smoking. I remember seeing uh, uh, Joe Hockey and, and uh, Matthias Cormann smoking a cigar. Uh, some of the well, courtyards of Parliament House, you might, if you're lucky enough to be on the inside. Um, yeah, but, but not yes. very many of them do, no, frankly, you're because right. it's not very smart. But my point is, um, you don't see them smoking in public, you don't see them advocating smoking in public. Um, or smoking at all. Yeah, or having too many drinks and getting sloppy yeah, at the pub. Because, yeah. because there's a difference between what is legal and what is A good desirable. look or a bad look. Sure. Yeah. And and I, as I say, I don't think the images of Scott Morrison at the footy played well, especially when Melbourne is in lockdown. But I do think it has to be, you know, it has to be consistent. We're telling people from a public health message it's safe to go to the football. So the Prime Minister's going to the football. And you can't say, oh, it is safe and you can go, but there's also a risk. So the Prime Minister's not going to go because we don't want him getting sick because he's somehow, you know, outranks Well, we don't him. want him getting sick, though. Well, we don't want anyone getting sick. But no. I, I think but they may pivotal. have to look at the rules again. I just – look, I understand people don't like this image and I don't think it was exactly wise. I think it was a bit sloppy. But um, – as a Victorian, maybe I'm particularly frustrated, but decisions taken by someone in the Andrews government, not necessarily Daniel Andrews, has led to a second outbreak, which is not only in Victoria, it's now looking to get further out. And I think if we're going to be spending our time focused on politicians doing wrong, I think we actually have to focus on what went wrong there because something I don't, extra I don't disagree with incredible that. has I gone wrong there. I don't disagree with that. And, and, and I think it's an interesting point you make about that uh, uh, I think this is quarantine. a sideshow. 
I think, the distraction of the Well, support. yeah, but this is the Prime Minister. The Prime Ministers are unique. You know, there's no one else holds that position. It's a very pivotal, it's the most high-profile position in the country. It's the senior leadership position in the country. I mean, it is held to a different standard. Um, you know, the Prime Minister himself, I think, observed recently that one of the things he's noticed about successful leaders is they rarely make the same mistake twice. Well, he, <laughs> it sort of does look to me like he's made the same mistake twice, both in relation to the Sharkies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think and I can see that and I also think uh, Hawaii, uh, things like this. Look, I think he's obviously going on a little bit of a break this week too with a holiday and I saw and, some and people saying... And that's completely understandable. Should he be able to go on a holiday? Well, that's, you know... I, Everybody will come to their own conclusions on whether. Well, my view is that as long as he's connected, uh, you know, we're all working from home, right? Yeah, yeah, we all work from home exactly. (laughs) No one's not connected these days, I mean, regrettably. So, yes, it's uh, it's an interesting one. You're you're a Victorian like me. Oh, I'm not a Victorian, but you're you know, I'm I'm a a South Australian, right? So I'm just. (laughs) I remember when the uh, 500 person ban was being announced. I did rather coldly quip that. That wasn't going to affect the, uh, you know, the I, NRL I did too, anyway. right? <laughs> Having never been to an NRL game, I actually don't see the attraction. Uh, but know, <laughs> they don't get that many people. That are, no, that's not true. Um, so, what do you just just before we go back to Quentin? What what do you think of the mood in Victoria at the moment? Um, I was speaking to my son on the weekend who lives in Melbourne. His view was that um, there's still quite high support and public confidence in Daniel Andrews. Uh, obviously, that's going to be subjective. I mean, it depends who you're talking to and where you start from and so forth. But uh, up until this point, Andrews had probably been, I think, the best communicator of the urgency of the crisis. So there's a sort of irony that in this state, which was seen to be the toughest state in terms of its restrictions and so forth, that this happened. Um, but there's also a lot of anger about how it happened. Um What's your sense of the of the mood there? What's your family telling you or friends? Look, I definitely think he has enjoyed a lot of support and a lot of it is rightly so. You know, for one, the opposition down there aren't very strong, aren't doing a great deal. It's hard for all oppositions at the moment, but we saw them get smashed in the last state election and they haven't really come good since then. So uh, premiers of both sides of politics are particularly popular at the moment. I do think Daniel Andrews has some incredible strengths and communication is one of them. There might still be confidence in him, and I think that's partly to do with the fact that in a crisis you have nowhere else to go. You've got to basically back in your leader. But increasingly as we find out about this, um, what happened, I think eventually somebody in that government is going to have to go, and it's the mood that I think federal Labor MPs understand, having spoken to a few of them over the last week about this. Um, the The concern was that once people start, losing their lives because of the second outbreak and it being directly related to poor quarantine, which didn't happen in other states, that it's very hard for a minister to hang on. And I felt the same about New South Wales when the Ruby Princess, you know, there was state and federal issues with that. But at the end of the day, at one stage, one third of those cases back in April were linked to the Ruby Princess. That's cases across Australia. And That wasn't because people weren't social distancing or doing the wrong thing or going to the footy. That was because of a decision made by governments. And this is the same in Victoria. And I just think we were so close to getting past this. And for whatever reason, a decision to hire private security firms and not mix them in with police and the army was taken in Victoria Yes, those, you know, probably have questions to answer themselves, those security firms and the individuals involved and and their behaviours. But governments, their first job is to keep us safe. And I think in this case, they haven't. And this has led to an outbreak in Victoria, um, businesses being shut down. And yeah, I'm not getting the sense there's this huge move against the government at the moment, but we're a long way out from the next state election. And I think unless somebody takes the fall or responsibility for this, then, you know, there will be rightly anger if there is deaths, widespread outbreak, a widespread outbreak that spreads interstate too. Yeah. And, of course, you know, businesses being shut down for six weeks, parents having to homeschool their kids for another six weeks. Do you think the P- uh, the, the Premier should have taken more responsibility? There ought to have been an earlier acknowledgement and apology rather than this kind of uh, – standard political device of saying, well, we've got an inquiry underway and we'll await that? Look, I understand the need for an inquiry because you do get the answers, um, but there is a sense that it kicks the can down the road. Now, look, Daniel Andrews has said, I'm the Premier, the decision stopped with me. And there was some speculation over the weekend and come for months now that he might not 
run another term, that he might actually stand aside regardless of this, that he would hand over to somebody else in the Labor Party. And there is a thought that perhaps he was testing the waters for that, that after COVID finishes, maybe he will stand aside. I'm not sure. cooler perhaps? Uh, for Premier or to get in trouble about this because he was actually... That's what a, I'm saying. Now, I was joking about him being an alternative Premier because but he look, is I, I the Minister responsible, isn't he? He has taken responsibility in some ways. He said the buck stops with him. An apology, I think, is definitely needed. You know, this, I just, I, I used to be a Spring Street reporter. I've reported on Victorian politics for a long time and there's been a, a lot of faux controversies over the past decade where people have called for heads very quickly and I, I, I haven't felt that all of them were necessary. You know, uh, this one, I think, there are some serious questions to be answered. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we'll take a quick break there and when we come back we'll uh, go into this question about whether we were really almost past it as you just said or whether and, and whether that's a realistic proposition. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, Quentin Grafton, just before the break, Annika was saying that there's a lot of anger in Victoria, uh, quite understandable about that. Uh, and she made the, the observation that uh, part of that is the sense that, uh, you know, they were almost past the, the worst of this. Uh, you were talking earlier about the uh, I guess the two choices between um, the the one we went for suppression and what you now say we should be pursuing is elimination of the virus. Can you talk to that? Yeah, look, elimination of the virus simply means there isn't community transmission. Clearly, the virus will continue to enter Australia. So, so it's not like there won't be cases in Australia. It's about making sure there isn't community transmission. And we know it can be done. It's already happened in certain parts of Australia, WA, for example. Uh, we know it's, it's happened in New Zealand. They, that was their goal. They, they achieved that goal. They went into lockdown for nine weeks. So it was more severe than we did. We, we went six weeks, but it wasn't even as, as severe as New Zealand. And they got it. They, they, they were either the combination of luck, the combination of planning and that goal. So what does elimination give you? Well, if you talk about footy matches, you can go to a footy match in New Zealand, uh, I have a brother in New Zealand, and he was telling me he went to a footy match at forty-five thousand people at the footy match. Okay, that's now. This is you know just a month ago. So that's what elimination gets you. You basically get back to normal as pretty much as you can. And one of the myths that has gone on and on and on about this uh, about COVID is that somehow or other relaxing the lockdown is good for the economy, and the sooner we do it, the better off the economy is. Well, that's just not true in the context of the uh, levels of infection. If you're able to eliminate, you can go back to whatever it is, the 98% or 95% economy, okay, which is where New Zealand is. Clearly, it's still being affected because we've got a global, global recession at the moment. But if you don't go to elimination, if you have low levels of infection, which was the goal of National Cabinet, that was the goal, low COVID, not no COVID. And when you get to those points, you have to have a platinum plus system of testing and contact tracing. And clearly we didn't. It was clearly not true in Victoria and it wasn't true elsewhere. It's not platinum plus in New South Wales. And unless we have that, we can't get away with low COVID. 
and we can see what's happened. The infection will blow up. And obviously there was hidden transmission in, in, a, in certain communities that we didn't know about, and it just got out of control. So, so that's, the, that's the bottom line. Um, we've got to make sure we do the right thing, and the right thing is contact tracing and testing and social distancing and suppression when required. In the context of Victoria, we do have a second chance. A second chance is to try and eliminate community transmission within Victoria. Make sure the border stays up so it doesn't get seeded into elsewhere. That might be too late, perhaps. But that's the sort of thing we need to do for Victoria. We know it works. It worked in WA. It's worked in other jurisdictions in Australia. It's worked in other countries. So that's that's where we've got to go. And, of course, businesses will say, well, open up sooner, open up sooner, because my business is hurting. I get that. I really do. I'm, I'm not trying to sound uh, 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 someone who's insensitive. But the point about it is, as those businesses are finding now in Melbourne in the shutdown, they open up too soon, then we have to have another lockdown because basically they, people are getting affected and ultimately people will start dying. So the better, the better approach is to go a little longer, go hard, go early, go hard, get the elimination, and then everyone's uh, can, can be a winner. And obviously, you need the government to step in in terms of business support, in terms of unemployment, and a whole range of issues. And of course, the government has done a pretty good job of that. But that's the sort of and does that does that do. get you, Quint, sorry to interrupt, Quint, but does that get you around the 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 mismatch I was talking about earlier in terms of the 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 sort of atmosphere in the community about this? I mean, because once you get achieve what uh, the authorities would call functional elimination, so the only virus you're getting is is coming in from people outside and that's that's tightly managed and there's no community transmission it would be pretty hard at that point would it not to maintain the levels of social distancing that have been required to now which are which are already falling apart as we know really hard to uh, to keep people you know at fever pitch urgency when the urgency appears to have passed of course people get complacent and of course we don't need to have the measures that uh, that exist right now in melbourne a lockdown we don't need that in the rest of the country at the moment though i would argue we need it in in the in the whole state of victoria so you're right you know people uh, should be able to do the things that they like to do but people have to understand that if you have low levels of infection, community transmission, which is happening right now in New South Wales, I've seen the latest numbers, okay, apparently 10 community transmission in New South Wales. So we're now in double figures. We'll see where that goes in the next few days. Then we have to have a platinum plus testing and contact tracing regime. And if we don't have that, it will go like Victoria. And, and I don't believe we have that. So we have to you know, when we made that decision at the end of April, we as a national cabinet, it wasn't my decision. And of course, it's a tough decision. When you make that decision, then we should have put the resources into testing and contact tracing. So we don't reach a capacity limit of, let's say, 100 at a state level. That's totally inadequate. We're getting numbers, you know, almost almost 300 a day, you know, in the weekend in Victoria, that means we're well beyond our capacity. We should have had a capacity to be able to deal with at least three or 400 a day in this country, and we obviously haven't. And so if, if we don't have that and we have low COVID, i.e. some level of low infection, it will get out of hand. And so we hopefully we will learn from this lesson. And this lesson A is try and eliminate if we can uh, in Victoria. Uh, we know it can be done. Let's try. Let's have it as a goal. And secondly, let's make sure we've got a platinum plus testing and contact tracing regime. That's that's the basics. And of course, individuals need to make the call because we know that wearing masks does help. We do know one and a half meter distancing does help. So I, I would argue that, uh, you know, we would maintain the one and a half meter distancing until uh, and unless we don't have community transmission. Um, so people who are going out in Sydney today right now, probably who are doing whatever they're doing, they should be aware that they should keep that one and a half metres. And uh, if they are vulnerable, and certainly if they're going indoors into public spaces, they should be putting a mask on to give themselves protection. So those are the... So, 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 do, you, so do you think, or Annika, Annika do you think that um, the PM and, and indeed premiers or all officials who are making public comments should be wearing masks? 
especially in Victoria. Uh, they've actually said recently that everybody there should be doing it when they can't. So when we see Dan Andrews next talking, he will be presumably wearing a mask. Well, it does. Uh, the mask thing has been a mixed message the whole time, and I think mm. it's been really disastrous. And I know there has been more information come in recently. Cambridge only did a study last month, which actually said it does get the you know transmission rate low, and especially when you use it with social distancing and washing your hands, that it really can help. But uh, on Friday we saw a, a switch. Uh, the chief health officer in Victoria came out and said, yes, if you can't socially distance, you should definitely be wearing them. And that had actually been the message for a while, but it, it definitely didn't hadn't come across that way. So I think... The, the initial sort of reticence about this at least partly was driven by the scarcity problem, wasn't it? Absolutely. They wanted to keep them first for... First you know, professionals, and, and that's yeah, fine. And now mind. they're telling people to start making them at home and <laughs> things like this. I went and bought some on the weekend. I bought some flashy coloured ones that I can rewash because I don't want to keep throwing them out. Um, I think they should start to see them. Now, that might maybe within the room that Daniel Andrews is talking in, they're spread out enough and he, he isn't in that case. But Yeah, but it's about, this goes back to my point. It's about, about image. About the message. I, yeah. I get that. And that was the you know issue with Trump for so long. So, look, I don't think it would hurt for he, his other ministers, uh, things like this. And if it gets to the stage in New South Wales, sure, for Scott Morrison to start wearing them too, especially if he's going to continue to go to the footy. I think seeing that as a really powerful image um, and I think it does it, it does send a message and that's what you were saying about the football, I get it. But I think when there is actually a shift in rules, which is what we saw on Friday in Victoria, then, yeah, they should be following those rules. Yeah. Can I just add something? There's an issue about sure. hotel quarantine and I think it's worth highlighting regardless of the, the, the mistakes that were made uh, in Melbourne. But, you know, it, it took to the 26th of June. I don't know whether your list, the listeners get this. It took to the 26th of June for Brandon Murphy to make a statement that we should be testing people on entry and exit into quarantine hotels. Mm. <laughs> Give me a break. I mean, I mean, I was shocked when I heard that. And I found Same. That, I, I mean, thought they were I mean, all being done. It just seemed logical that this was happening. Yeah. it's it, See, you can't do tick boxing, and you highlighted this earlier, Mark. It's about risk management, effective risk management. It's not about ticking a box. Oh, they're in hotel quarantine. We don't have to worry. Well, of course, there's going to be leakage, potential leakage. So if there's leakage, we need to have contact tracing and testing. We need to make sure we are actually testing everybody going into a quarantine hotel, because if they're positive on arrival, we need to separate them from everyone else. <laughs> Okay, and if they are going out of the quarantine hotel, we need to make sure, as much as we can, it can't be perfect, that they are not uh, infectious. So, I mean, that's just basic risk management. How could we have waited till the twenty sixth of June to be doing that as part of our protocols? It's to me that's that there's a blame there, and it's not just to Daniel Andrews. It's it's across the country about implementation and failure to implement the basic rules in terms of how you would manage a, a pandemic. Annika, do you think that there are other jurisdictions? I mean, we, we always uh, were told that there would be uh, outbreaks, that there could be, you know, the danger was of a second wave. Um, and, and so I guess in one, at one level, we're not surprised that it's happened, but uh, the severity of this and the way it has come about, uh, as Quentin was just saying, from what appears to be some pretty gross negligence uh, is, uh, is quite staggering. But do you think other jurisdictions uh, were sometimes perhaps uh, quietly sighing uh, in relief and thinking uh, lucky it wasn't us and perhaps tightened up their regimes? I mean, it, is it likely that in other states they were just able to get away with it because there wasn't anyone with infections? Yeah, yeah. I always actually sided with, you know, the Queensland borders being closed and WA. If I were in one of those states, I would want it. And I think there was a lot of shouting from Victoria and New South Wales, open up, we need it for the economy. But in terms of, you know, their voters and their electorates, why would you want people flooding in and, and spreading this? And yes, they may have got away with it because they didn't have many cases to start with. And, you know, it's a long way to get to Perth. It's easier to sort of man the borders than, say, more porous ones between Victoria and New South Wales, where people are always heading up and down the Hume. But as much as I don't want to live in an Australia where the borders are closed, I'd like to be able to travel home and, and see friends and family. I completely understand the reason for it. And when you look at how much some of these jurisdictions have come out of it now and the luxuries they're enjoying that people on the East Coast aren't, um, you know, I can understand why they've done it. And, and I think they will continue to do it too, especially as we see the outbreak in Victoria spread. Right. Well, look, next week, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is going to deliver his economic statement. That's fairly keenly awaited, of course. You wouldn't want to be a Treasury official at the moment trying to put together some of the forecasts upon which that is based. Uh, Quentin, what, what do you think uh, we're going to be looking at? Uh, the, the government's um, 
you know, made it pretty clear that it's not going to be just uh, taking the economy to a cliff edge and and ending all of all of the the assistance that it's you know put in so far. But um, it's pretty hard to tell exactly how they're going about it. Have you turned your mind to that at all? Well, I, I certainly won't be giving any predictions on numbers. Uh, I think they'd be pretty hard pressed in Treasury to do that. But and especially now with this outbreak in in Victoria, that. Um, may have come a surprise to some people in, in Treasury. And, and, of course, that's going to have a big impact on on the continuation of the job keeper, job seeker type uh, uh, payments that are out there. So, look, where does this go? I think we just got to be quick. We've got to be nimble, so to speak, in terms of uh, making sure that uh, we keep programs in place so we don't fall off the cliff. And I'm really encouraged by both the, the Treasury and the Prime Minister's statements on that. And uh, we've done a pretty good job. There are some sectors that did really did get missed out in terms of support, but we've done a pretty good job. Uh, we've got to do a pretty good job going beyond September. In terms of forecasts, I would be very, uh, very loath to go on that because we don't know what the rest of the world is doing. And of course, we don't know where we will be with this, um, you know, continuing uh, set of outbreaks in Victoria and possibly, possibly into New South Wales. So yeah, um, yeah, basically be, be nimble, be quick and, um, and don't be afraid to spend the money. We've got to spend the money to make sure we, we get out of this in a reasonable way. And at the moment, we're doing okay. Uh, we're not doing well. We're doing okay compared to some countries, and uh, obviously we are in recession. Uh, obviously, this is bad news in all sorts of dimensions. We just got to make sure we manage it in an effective way at a national level, where we've got the resources and finances to do so, and that provide the support to people, obviously uh, Australians, and, and as required in terms of the states as well, in terms of any resources they need, in particular in the context of contact tracing, testing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to the uh, the statements, and uh, I think we'll have to take them with a pinch of salt uh, or, or two in terms of what those numbers will tell us. Uh, they won't be happy numbers. Um, um, uh, but uh, let make sure uh, we keep on doing what we're doing and do it better. Annika, what are you hearing uh, on on the grapevine here in Canberra about this statement? Is there um, expectation that there's going to? I mean, there's, I've heard, for example, there's uh, talk of tapering of uh, of um, doing sector wide um, assistance uh, to those sectors that are that are the most affected. Um, what are you hearing? Yeah, I definitely think sector wide directions are going to be more than geographic. We're not going to see Victoria get something that New South Wales isn't going to get. Early on, um, some ministers were saying to me that it would be especially focused on um, tourism first. Not only that were they hit by COVID, but suffering from the bushfires and and a lot of people not coming here over summer. So I think you could definitely expect to see um, some energy directed there. Uh, In addition to that, there will be obviously support for you know, certain areas that are some hospitality that have taken longer to the arts. They've obviously had a huge package, but people that can't reopen until the numbers sort of grow. Uh, wedding industries, I think anybody that requires more than 50 or 100 people to sort of justify their business, you're more likely to see them get support than, say, the good people at Bunnings who have actually flourished during this sort of time. So, but, so. but in a sense, it sounds like the recognition really is of um, – how much more, uh, how long and structural this problem is rather than perhaps the mentality, understandably, uh, I should add, the mentality going into this. There was a sense, you know, we talked, we yeah. had a snapback and there was this talk of of kind of a, a, what, what I guess in most people's minds was going to be a crisis but one that we could, you know, get to the other side of. The, the PM talked of a bridge, for example, to the other side. Yeah, now and hibernation more, and yeah, things like hi- that. Yeah, now it's more a recognition that, in fact, this is is a problem that has no it's a finite problem and it 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 will end eventually but who knows when and and the the tail of it in terms of unemployment businesses that just simply don't reopen others that reopen in a much smaller uh, capacity, all of this is going to uh, affect yeah. the overall economy. I also think there was a lot of criticism, and I think unfairly actually, in the initial design, and they had to get it out quickly. So when you have to get out a program like that quickly, it's like when Kevin Rudd sent you know checks to people back in the mm. early two thousands, earlier two thousands, that you're going to get it wrong. 
They're going to go to dead people. No, I agree. Going to I agree. I, I, I this system agree on that. was overly generous, and I think they've got to the point now where not overly generous, but there were some people getting it, and they were earning more. You know, yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And they only had one day a week of work, and, and absolutely they were good the on full... them. Hopefully, they spent it and pumped it into the economy. But I think now has got to the stage where, as you say, this is a much longer pro- problem that we're going to have to face, and I think really targeting. And the interesting thing is there is the government has almost confirmed and many people have said it to me that they will also announce job seeker changes with this because the two work together as the unemployment rate goes up and not every job can be saved. They're going to have to look at a more long-term. And if it's a more long-term job seeker, then it's presumably a lower one. At the, you know, we, we know that job seeker was at $40 a day when it was called uh, New Start. Uh, it's been stuck there for a long time. Both sides of politics did nothing about it. Let's not just slate this mm. home to the coalition. Even even Labor was circumspect about it before the last election. They've become much more uh, clear about it since. Um, <laughs> but uh, they they were not prepared to commit to an increase in the dole then. Mm. Um, it's been effectively doubled. It's now, uh, by my calculations, seventy eight dollars a day. This is the as the job seeker payment. So obviously that we're talking about the difference between forty and eighty. Virtually the middle point is sixty. Do you think that's the kind of place they might end up at? Uh, make it more permanent, uh, as in make it a long-term payment, a long-term allowance, but uh, not not as high as it is and not as low as it was. I think we can definitely say it's going to go up. It's not going to sit where it has been. Um, I the number I was getting a few weeks ago was about seventy dollars more a week, which is a as you say, sort of a halfway mark there. So that's that. So that would be fifty rather than forty. Yes. That's yes. not good enough. It's well, it depends who you ask. <laughs> I think the government. You well, know, it's they just would... not. I mean, fifty would still be. It's a. That's a terrible rate. I yeah, mean... it's not at all high. Um, it's the it's the amount that some of the cross the people on the back bench um, have Spend been on lunch. have been saying that they would prefer, and it was actually based on a study not by ACOS but by the New South Wales Council of Social Services last year that was sort of going for I guess a reasonable amount that they thought the government could settle on, and they were saying, well, this would at least you know do something. In, in that sort of space, it's about $10 a day more. It takes $50 a day. Um, look, it will be still not sufficient for a lot of people. but it, And that lot of people that you talk about is a larger lot of people. Exactly. So it's numerically uh, significant and numerically significant translates to politically significant, which is one of the reasons why it's gone up so dramatically in the short term. I suspect what we will see is different add-ons, whether you call them supplements yeah. or whatever you want to call them. That's how they'll do it. So this is what we're talking about with the $40 a day or going up to $50 a day is the base rate. A lot of people get different supplements for different things, whether that's rent or, or whatever else. And I think we will see more of those in addition because then that gives the government a way to peel it back as opposed to those locked-in things, those sure. baked-in changes we talk about. We're getting close to time, but I, I, I want to just go to Donald Trump because he's always worth a mention. Uh, he's just commuted uh, the, um, the, 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 the conviction, uh, the conviction stands, but he's commuted the jail term of, uh, of Roger Stone, his long-term advisor. Uh, Quentin, have you been uh, following, uh, the, obviously, the, uh, the way the United States has handled the virus, as you said before, has been pretty appalling, but uh, we see the president still focused on helping out his friends. This, this is about the sixth or seventh felon that he has that has been closely associated with him that he has um uh, stepped in and and um and protected it's appalling <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what words can we use what can you in the context say of this decision but all sorts of decisions that he's made so um uh, what can what could we say it's all it's already been said many times but look um I, I, I think you've mentioned Donald Trump. I think he needs to be held accountable uh, for his response on, on COVID-19, for example. There's lots of lives left lost in the United States that have uh, been lost needlessly, in my view. Um, so, I mean, he's accountable in all sorts of ways. He, apparently, he doesn't need to show his tax returns. He can commute the, the sentences of, of personal friends who are convicted felons. I mean, it's, uh, the list goes on. I mean, and yet he has, uh, with ex- one exception, I think, uh, which you wrote about recently, uh, Mark, in the context of the U.S. Senate, um, you know, uh, his uh, Republican senators uh, have, uh, you know, voted not to have him impeached. 
And so, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's the list is so long <laughs> and so outrageous. The only, the only way we can uh, move on, I think, is there's an outcome in the November presidential election, but, uh, but nothing is sure in politics, that's for sure. No, absolutely. And it doesn't appear to be. It, it is actually quite extraordinary, Annika, that that disconnect we see in the US and in some other places, I might say, between what seems to be terrible negligence and denial by political leaders and their survival. And you mentioned before that, uh, that you know, all, virtually all leaders have, have gone up in, in their standing, probably because, you know, we, we look to them, there's a sort of a a, a putting down of the the swords in relation to a whole bunch of other uh, problems, other divisions, and you know everyone focuses on the common enemy, and the leader has to stand up. So leaders have done uh, reasonably well uh, where they haven't, you know, absolutely stuffed it up. But even where they have, I mean, Trump's approval rating is low now, but uh, still there are uh, quite a few sage economic uh, uh, political commentators in the US who do not write off the possibility of him surviving. I mean, I, I find that staggering to think that you could deny this threat. Um, they've got, they're, they're around 135,000 deaths at the moment um, and, and it's galloping away from them, 60,000 infections a day. Uh, does that surprise you, the sort of disconnect? that? With- Prior to COVID, I was convinced he was going to win. I spent six weeks travelling around the US last year and I got a good sense of, I guess, the mood over there and I just didn't think there was a chance he would lose, uh, even when they... So you weren't in New York where I was in January. I was in New I York too. Find, I didn't t- find anyone who thought he was going to win. I think I realised that uh, New York is... Um, not you the know, United States. Is not, uh, is not Trump central, which no. is weird because that's where he's from. But yeah. um, look, I I still am not convinced he will lose. I think there's a few issues there. Um, his base thrive off the sort of behaviour and the pitching of political um, allegiances against each other, whether it be Black Lives Matter or the response to the the COVID pandemic, we look at it and are appalled. We, we're testing, we're locking down, you know. Mm. There, are, there is a sense of individualism in the US that we just don't even understand because we, it's not, we're not born with it. We don't have this intrinsic idea of the individual. And, and I think when you have that in a society, you know, it is unsurprising that people are out marching in the streets saying we have the right to get sick and we have the right to die and we have the right to run our business. And that does seem to be where he's getting a lot of his support from. I also think the Democrats haven't chosen well in Joe Biden in terms of somebody that could really take on Trump. Uh, he seems like an, you know, a decent guy and, and did a good job working alongside Obama, but I don't know if he's the personality to take on someone like Donald Trump when he really just manages to energise his base. Having said that, he needs rallies to win. And that's how he won last time, Trump. Yeah. And he's not going to be able to get those rallies. And if he is and they get (laughs) outbreaks from them, maybe that'll, you know, get some of his supporters um, offside. Although they do seem to be almost evangelical in their support for him, the people that do. do But my argument has always been that his base is more energised perhaps even than it was last time, but it doesn't appear to be any bigger. Whereas he has, as a president, energised his opponent more efficiently than I've ever seen a president Absolutely. do. So, and that's the big. And of course, they don't have compulsory voting like us. So there must have been a, a huge group in the middle that didn't go out and vote last yeah. time, perhaps not thinking he would even get close. And now they're going to be there. I think it has changed my view. I was convinced he was going to win up until COVID. This does seem to be going very poorly for him. I think it comes down now to what Biden does. I don't think he has the luxury of just sitting by and hoping that Trump loses and he wins. I think he has mm. to do a bit more than that. Yeah. Now, can I just quickly before we go mention uh, the situation in Malaysia because this goes to the, an issue close to your heart and to mine. Uh, these five journalists that are being investigated uh, for potentially sedition, uh, defamation by the authorities in Malaysia, uh, that must be uh, a considerable concern to, to you given uh, you know what you've been writing about in your own experiences. Yeah, I think um, unfortunately for me and, and uh, I didn't, I'm not saying I didn't care about press freedom. I didn't have a a firsthand experience of it. And I think it was something in my mind like human rights or world peace that you intrinsically believe in, but until it really affects you and rattles you and you find yourself in a situation like I am, I don't think you can quite understand it. And that's not even to be put in a position that these this situation, this is, you know, in, they're in a country a long way from home where they could face some serious penalties. You know, I was facing jail, but um, I think, you know, the predicament they're in is a lot worse. 
Australia has to be strong on this. Um, you know, we were very strong with Peter Grester and trying but, to get him back. Can, we haven't can, been strong with Julian Assange. As no, we no, be. we have not been strong with that. Ha, ha, could we? Uh, would would our credibility be greater? Were we not threatening to lock up whistleblowers and journalists? I mean, there's the case going on against Witness K, and there was a huge issue around Bernard this, Caleri. and it was mentioned at the time by Amal Clooney that if uh, countries like Australia don't speak up when they've got issues at home, then it allows other countries, such as Malaysia, who don't have such a great track record on free press to act like this. And we need to act as a world leader. And she said and this about, yeah. about eight months ago that the risk of Australia not standing up in my case and the ABC's case and to all the other issues we've got here involving whistleblowers is that it then gives a green light to countries that perhaps have a bad track record here to keep acting that way. And that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, we need consistency. Perhaps, uh, Quentin, uh, it would have been better if uh, someone other than the Victorian government or a, an authority, in this case a retired judge, but, I mean, the Chinese might think that they should do the uh, inquiry into hotel quarantine breakdowns <laughs> in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, I mean, I, I think the issue is, is is trust. And so, you know, can we trust that someone to do an independent inquiry? And I believe we can in this context of the hotel quarantine, but, you know, people will have to make their own judgment on that. But a question of trust, do we trust our leaders? Do we trust the experts if they're telling us stuff? Mm. Uh, that That's really uh, very important. And uh, in the society we live in, a democracy like Australia, though there's some some limits to that democracy, as we've just heard, uh, we need to make sure that uh, the people are, uh, are, are, this is part of the, the, the communication, the, the dialogue we have with people and people need to be able to buy in and accept and trust that the, the leadership is doing the right thing by them. And if they're not, then uh, then we have all sorts of uh, bad bad things happen, as we've uh, talked about in terms of the United States. So so let's make sure we do the right thing and our leadership does the right thing and and uh, we can we can get over all the, the some of the challenges that we're all facing. But, um, yeah. And the only way to do that is, of course, to have a robust free press. Absolutely. It is, the, you know, an absolutely National fundamental National Integrity Commission over. that works. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I think we're all agreed on that too. Look, thank you, Professor Quentin Grafton. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Annika. And thank you, Annika Smithhurst. No worries. Thanks. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for listening to Democracy Sausage again. And uh, I'll be back on Thursday of this week when I'm hoping to be discussing the Palace Letters release with the one and only Frank Bongiorno. And I'm really looking forward to that discussion. So until then, bye for now. 